All right, guys. So like it or not, we're talking about head coverings this morning. Uh, the first thing that we've got to get past as we dive into this text is we've got to understand how similar the culture in this ancient city of Corinth was to ours. I think, I think sometimes we read the Bible with this bias, like this was a conservative community that would have not understood our modern world at all. Do you know that in the ancient world, in fact, to Corinthianize was used as a verb. So you might be hanging out in Rome in the first century, and you might be having a conversation with a person in a coffee shop, and they might say to you, last night, I spent some time Corinthianizing. And what they would mean by Corinthianizing is that they spent time disobeying all of God's commands, specifically regarding sexuality and gender. They were either participating in fornication or adultery or homosexual practice, or they were cross-dressing. The Corinthian community would not be surprised by anything that is happening in our day. They would have been delighted that our technological advances allow us to explore sexual immorality and transgender practice more fully. So Paul writes this text into that culture. And the overall theological principle that he is looking to get across to us here is that gender is God's creative design to reflect his glory. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to explain to you a little bit of the method to my madness. And in so doing, I hope to help you to tackle difficult texts for yourself in the future. So in a text like this, you have overall theological principles which are timeless. I'm summarizing that by saying gender is God's creative design to reflect his glory. But then you also have culturally bound applications of that theological principle. In this case, the practice of wearing head coverings. What we are looking to do is keep the timeless theological principle and adapt the cultural practice to our day. Now, it's easier in some texts than it is in others. For example, when you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Bible exhorts you to greet one another with a holy kiss. I didn't see any men exchanging kisses in the foyer this morning. That's because we naturally adopt that principle and embrace instead the sacred side hug or knuckles to the glory of God. And what we're planning on doing in this text is we're applying that same principle to a much more difficult text. Okay, so we're just going to take it three pieces at a time. Here's where I'm going. I'm talking about the dignity of masculinity, the beauty of femininity, which is where we're going to do most of our heavy lifting, and number three, the equality of men and women. So first of all, in this text, we see the dignity of masculinity. We're looking at verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me read those again. It says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, 
even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So overall, Paul's intention in this text is that we would be imitators of him as he is an imitator of Christ. He says he wants us to understand as we imitate Christ, what that looks like specifically within the context of marriage and the church. And he says he wants us to understand this, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. He wants us to have a Trinitarian understanding of authority. So here's what men can do with this text that is obnoxious and unbiblical. They can say, the head of every wife is her husband. And then they go and define head or authority in whatever cultural expression they wanna take. So this is a woman, get me the beer husband. This is either the passive husband who takes no leadership in his family or this is the overly aggressive husband who is taking his cues more from the military or from sports or from politics for what headship looks like. But Paul says in this text that we are to take our cues for what authority looks like from God the Father and from his Son. So here is what characterizes God's leadership of us. It is courage and kindness. It is service and it is proactive love. Paul summarizes this type of love in another place in saying that the love of Christ is a, life, a love that lays down its life for another. Biblical headship, yes, it is authority, but it is the type of authority that does not power over people, but seeks to serve them in love. Masculinity is dignified when it looks like this. So the question for us as men who are married is does our leadership in our families and does our leadership in the church look more like Christ or does it look more like our broken culture? Are we in a tender yet courageous way defined by pursuit and protection and provision for the women in our lives or are we either domineering or passive in a way that looks nothing like Jesus? Now, I think that in order to see this type of leadership lived out, we need to be in close proximity to one another in this church. The church is designed to be a good family. And as family members, 
we are across generations to hang out with each other so that we can see Christ-like characteristics in one another's lives. I think some of us, we look at this and we say, well, this doesn't make any sense in our culture. But I think if we see it lived out, we will see the beauty of it. I remember before having kids, I went to some of Melissa and I's friend's house who did have kids. And the dad's name was Eric. And I remember we were sitting around their kitchen island with some of his kids. And we were just having a normal conversation. And he went to the refrigerator and he got out an orange. And he was just peeling the orange as he was talking to us. And I was expecting, well, him to do what I would do, which is just eat the orange that I was peeling. And very patiently, he just started asking each of his kids if they would like some of the orange that he had. And I remember thinking, okay, it's a really simple act, but in observing him do that, I was like, I want to be that type of dad who's not just thinking, I would like something to eat, but is patiently thinking about my family members and what they would want and what they would like. I think that that is a simple example, not heroic on the surface, of what it looks like for a man to be the head of his family. It is to take responsibility, to use his authority, to serve in his God-given position as a reflection of the love that Jesus has shown to him in his leadership position. So he loves because Christ has first loved him. Not as a domineering authority, but as a serving authority. That's the call to us as men. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. So that's the dignity of masculinity. Secondly, in the text, we see the beauty of femininity. Take a deep breath. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 through 10. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, this just took a weird turn. Let's just acknowledge that. What's with the head coverings? Should we still do this? That's the question. So let's go back to what we said at the beginning. The theology of the Bible and the moral commandments in the Bible are fixed realities, but the cultural application of that theology and those commands is different. So we believe the theology here, and we believe that there is an application to that theology, but we believe that the application to that theology is different 
than women wearing head coverings to church. Okay, so the theology is found in verses 7 through 10 in this passage. Paul gives his reasoning for why women in the church ought to wear head coverings in that day and men should not, and he describes it this way. He is the image and glory of God, and she is the glory of man. Now, if you're a good Bible student, you should pause at this point, and you should, in your brain, go back to the creation of the universe in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and you should remember that God made both men and women, male and female, in his image and for his glory. So we shouldn't jump to this erroneous conclusion that what Paul is saying is that women were not created in the image and glory of God and that they are therefore not equal to men. Instead, we should follow this text in its context and follow Paul's exact logic because he explains that he's not denying the theology of Genesis 1 through 3, but instead he is teaching something a little bit different here. So he tells us, here's what I mean by this statement. And he tells us with the word for. For means because. So he gives two reasons. He says, man was not made from woman, that's in creation, but woman from man. So you remember the story in Genesis, God took Adam's rib out and he fashioned a woman from his side. So she is literally made from him. And then, secondly, he gives another reason. He says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So here's the point that he's making in this text. Women are different than men because they come from them and were made for them. And so here's his application of that biblical principle. Women bear God's beautiful image in the home and in the church, not by being in the authority position where they reflect Christ's leadership, but women bear God's beautiful image in marriage and in the church in Christ-like submission. Not authority, but submission. So, what's with the head coverings? Why, in that culture, was a head covering a symbol of femininity? Head coverings meant at least three things in that culture. First of all, gender distinctions were preserved. It was a feminine thing to wear a head covering. It was a normal cultural practice outside of the church for a woman to cover her hair. It was dignified and it was feminine, a common way to dress. Secondly, it communicated that both sexes, both men and women, had appropriate regard for their head. That is, for their authority. By not wearing a head covering, men were communicating, Jesus is my head and my authority. And women, by wearing a head covering, were communicating, my husband is my head 
and my authority. In other words, it communicated that a woman was married. Married woman, women wore head coverings. And thirdly, it communicated modesty or purity. Communicated that a woman was not sexually available. It was a, mo- a modest and pure way for a woman to dress. So here's what a woman in that culture was embracing by wearing a head covering. She was embracing that women are precious and valuable and dignified. They were not second-class citizens. By wearing a head covering, she was basically quoting the old Shania Twain song and saying, man, I feel like a woman. And I'm proud of it. I'm not trying to look like a man. I'm glad that God created me as a woman. Number two, she was saying, I am proud to be married to this man. I am proud to be under his authority, and I am gladly submitting to him. And number three, she was communicating, I am not a sexual object who is available to you. Instead, I am a precious child of God, and so I don't need to dress for you. I am dressing for my maker. For a woman, it was an empowering thing for her to wear a head covering because she is saying to her creator, I am glad you made me exactly like this. So women in that day were to take the culturally normal dress for a married woman and they were to apply it to themselves to communicate a timeless theological principle which is that God made women in his image from men for men to the culture. And they were to say, I'm proud of this. Now, I'm saying women, not wives, because here's what I think Paul is getting at by having the women who are on stage who are prophesying and praying wearing head coverings. They are to be an example to the whole church. And so he is specifically saying to the women who are on worship team or the women who are praying or the women who are scripture reading or the women who are prophesying, I want you to dress in this way because I want you to tell all the women who are in the crowd what biblical femininity is. Okay, so what would the cultural application in our day to women be? First, I think it means that women are to dress in a non-sexually, non-sexual but culturally feminine way. When a person sees you walking down the street or at church, they should know that you are a woman by the way that you dress, not a man. Or they should know that you are a man by the way that you dress, not a woman. They shouldn't be confused about our gender based on our clothes. Number two, if you are married, you should take your husband's last name and wear your wedding ring to communicate that you are gladly under your husband's authority and that you are not sexually available. So here's the interesting balance that we see in this text. Women, specifically in this text, are called not to throw off the cultural norms of dress 
but also not to fully embrace the cultural norms of dress. So you're not saying, okay, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to dress in a Christian way. You're also not saying that you're going to fully embrace the culture, and that would be, in our culture, a culture of immodesty and sexually provocative dress. So you're dressing in a culturally appropriate, modest way. Here's why. Femininity is beautiful when it takes its cues from the submission of Jesus to his Father rather than from our rebellious culture. Submission is a beautiful thing. It is not a second-class thing. It is not something that takes away your dignity, but something that dignifies you as a woman. It is your God-appointed role in marriage and in the church. And you can trust that God is good, even if the men in your life have not been good. So here is an analogy that I'll often use when I'm doing weddings to describe this. Women, it is like you are the first chair violinist in a symphony. Okay? So God has called men to be the conductor. He's the head. He has the authority. You are the first chair violinist. God is Mozart. He wrote the piece that everybody's playing. The husband's role or the church leader's role is to follow the music, to conduct according to the music. Your role is to submit both to Mozart and the conductor and play the music as beautifully as you can. Now let me ask you this question. Who is the most important person in the symphony? Is it the conductor? Or is it the first chair violinist? An argument could be made that either one is the most important. And do you know what the answer is? Neither is more important than the other. But both are equally important to the symphony. And so here's my encouragement to women who feel like every time I'm saying the word submission, I'm saying a cuss word, which is understandable given the culture that we live in. Submission is not being silent and giving in. I want you to think about the scene when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and God, his authority and head, his father, has called him to go to the cross. Jesus does not just give in. Jesus tells God his Father, I don't want to do this. Now, here's why I bring that into this conversation. Because Jesus had a perfect leader, and he still argued with him. You have many imperfect leaders. It is okay and appropriate and encouraged for you to have a voice in every relationship that you have if you don't have a voice that is not biblical headship that you are submitting to. It's abuse. Submission has a voice, and you are called by God to use it. Number two, 
Submission is ultimately to Jesus, not to your husband or to any church leader. If your husband or a church leader is asking you to disobey King Jesus, you are to disobey them and submit to him. So submission is not ultimate. And thirdly, everybody's called to submit. Right before the famous passage in Ephesians 5 about wives submitting to their husbands, Paul says that everyone should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is not like a universal pronouncement to women that they can never be in positions of authority in corporate America or in other sectors of society. This is specifically talking about the church and the home. And everybody's called to submit, including the top leader in every organization and in every church. I certainly want to be submissive to our elders. Okay, so we see thus far the dignity of masculinity Christ-like leadership, the beauty of femininity in submission to their head. And thirdly, we see very clearly in this text the equality of men and women. Starting with verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, So man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul says here, All things are from God. And he says all things are from God as a conclusion to the reality that God has made women from men in the beginning of creation. And now that men come through women when they're born. And he says, so all things are from God. So here's the overall application for all of us as we think about this text. We are to respond with thankfulness for the gender that God has given us. Part of responding with thankfulness to the gender that God has given to us is rejecting our culture's response to these type of passages and our culture's understanding of gender. So we reject that gender is a choice that is based on your feelings. Instead, we believe that your biology was given to you by God to tell you which gender you are. So, Rejection of the gender binary, appropriate dress for men and women, and pronouns that are appropriate to your gender is sinful and is a result of the fall and rebellion against God. And accepting 
those things in our culture is to flip God off and to tell him that he is wrong about gender and that we understand more than he does. Here's what former professor of queer theory at Syracuse University, now homeschool mom and Christian, Rosaria Butterfield, wrote about this issue. She said, quote, transgenderism is political indoctrination and is the sin of envy. Using the definitions of our culture, sexual orientation is who you want to go to bed with and gender identity is who you want to go to bed as. Both terms are driven by the idol of sexual autonomy. Transgenderism is a painful reality for some people, and it describes what it is like to feel, genuinely so, that you have been born in the wrong body. Christians should be sensitive and compassionate. The Bible declares in Genesis 1.27 that being born male or female comes with moral responsibilities, constraints, and blessings, with the full understanding that through the fall of mankind and sometimes our own choices, these responsibilities and constraints are much more difficult for some than others. So here's the tension in the room right now. We have God saying to us that we ought to embrace the body and the gender that he has assigned to us in his grace at birth. But we also understand that each of our genders has both blessings and constraints. And God is asking us all to submit to him by saying, thank you. This is a good thing. And I am going to live as you have designed me to live and believe that true freedom is found there and not in exercising my independence and living according to the cultural norms of our day. Now, the second thing that I think needs to be true of each, each of us individually as Christians and certainly of our church as a whole is that we need to extend a hand of welcome to those for which this right now is emotionally impossible. Let me just recognize there are people in this room who feel like they were born in the wrong body. Gender dysphoria is a real thing. It has always been a real thing. I have never personally experienced it, but what I have experienced in my life is desires and feelings that are strong and powerful and continual that are contrary to the word of God. I have pride, I have lust, I have anger that I don't like, I wish that I could get rid of, but it's not as simple as just stop doing that. And so I want to say, 
if that is you, that Jesus can help. Here's what God's word says about the Lord into our gender-confused society. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to those who are brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If this news about gender does not feel like good news to you, but feels crushing to your spirit, I want to invite you to go to the same place that I have gone so that your heart can be made whole again, and that is to Jesus. What if your gender dysphoria has a purpose for the glory of God, and it is the thing that has broken you enough that you would see that you need him? What a gift. I've seen over and over again in my life that is those things that I least want in my life that end up being gifts because they bring me to the end of myself and to Jesus. And he is what our hearts were made for. Let's come to him even now. Jesus, Thank you for this teaching on gender. There are aspects of it that are a tremendous blessing to all of us, but there are also constraints and what feel like burdens for each gender. And I pray that as we process through these things individually and in our connection groups this week, that you would meet us. And I specifically just come to you on behalf of those in the room for which this message is particularly hard. Maybe it's them who's really struggling. Maybe it's a sibling that's really struggling or a friend or or a family member. Just ask that this message could be part of their healing, that they would feel emotionally welcomed by you and by our church going forward, that we would be a place that it is safe to struggle with all sorts of sin, whether taboo or not. Jesus, would you mend our broken hearts this morning? And God, forgive uh, those of us who have been judgmental or proud towards sins that we have not struggled with. Would you make us more tenderhearted and compassionate today? In Jesus' name.